A real quick final reminder, I will be a guest on the Cafe Tanware podcast today, July 20th, 2020. Tanware is T-A-N-W-E-E-R. I will be part of a panel discussing the experiences of black Muslims in the United States. I encourage you to support the Cafe Tanware podcast, that is T-A-N-W-E-E-R, by subscribing and then listen to the episode that I'm on first, and then you can go ahead and listen to all the other episodes. All right? Thank you for your support, and with that, let's get into the show. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 526, Influenza and Damascus. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Following the revelation of the Zimmerman telegram, the United States declares war on Germany on April 2, 1917. In March 1918, Russia signs a peace treaty with the Central Powers. A few weeks later, Germany transfers millions of soldiers to the Western Front and launches its spring offensive. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, the Ottomans continue to lose ground against the British. Despite losing Palestine, the Ottomans defeat two British attacks on Amman in Transjordan. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the fall of Damascus. In December 1914, Enver Pasha led a force of nearly 100,000 Ottoman troops into the Caucasus region to face the Russians. Both German and Ottoman officers advised against this plan. They warned Enver that his troops were not prepared for winter warfare. Furthermore, they added, The Russian position at Sarakamish was well defended and not strategically vital. Enver Pasha ignored their advice and went ahead with his plans. A month later, the Ottomans retreated from Sarakamish, having lost nearly 80% of their men. Most of the deaths suffered at Sarakamish were due to the harsh conditions. The temperatures in the Caucasus Mountains often drop to 30 degrees below zero. The snow-covered roads confused many troops who wandered for days in dizzying white blindness before dropping from exhaustion and cold. Those that survived were so malnourished and weakened from the ordeal, they were no match for the well-rested Russians. We discussed the Battle of Sarakamish in episode 7 of this series. We mentioned how this defeat crippled the Ottoman army, which never really recovered. And we discussed how this made it nearly impossible for the Ottomans to match the much stronger Allied forces. But we did not say much about the biological impact of the Battle of Sarakamish. The soldiers of the Ottoman Third Army spent nearly a month in Sarakamish, underfed, in cold, cramped conditions. 
Ottoman supply lines, such as they were, were broken and the troops had to forage for food and drink fetid water. This led to intestinal and respiratory issues such as sneezing, coughing, vomiting, and diarrhea. After spending several weeks in this cesspool of diseased bodily fluids, the Ottomans retreated to their bases in eastern Anatolia, where typhoid fever quickly spread from soldier to civilian and back again. The infected numbers skyrocketed, with nearly a thousand people falling ill with typhoid fever every day in the town of Erzurum in eastern Anatolia. The hospitals were overwhelmed, and schools and mosques became makeshift infirmaries. As Eugene Rogan mentions in his book, The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East. The patients were densely packed into rooms with straw mattresses on the floor, making it impossible to isolate or quarantine those who were contagious. Without disinfectant or other sanitary measures to combat disease, the hospitals themselves rapidly became the centers of transmission. Dr. Case reported as many as 60,000 deaths, civilians and soldiers combined, in Azurum. This, in a town whose pre-war population numbered only 60,000. Typhoid fever is a bacterial infection that generally spreads through contaminated water or close contact with an infected individual. In time, however, this outbreak in eastern Anatolia burned itself out and the empire carried on with the war. The Spanish Flu Three years later, the Ottoman Empire, and the rest of the world for that matter, would face a much deadlier disease. But this global pandemic did not begin in the icy mountains of the Caucasus. Instead, its first known traces were in the rural farmlands of southern Kansas in the United States. In early March 1918, Germany was preparing to launch Operation Kaiserschlacht, a last-ditch effort to win the war before American soldiers arrived. Meanwhile, in Fort Riley, Kansas, American military doctors reported that nearly 100 soldiers had recently fell ill with the flu. A week later, 400 new cases were reported. The next month, a medical report mentioned the mysterious flu outbreak in Kansas, which by this time had claimed at least three lives. The American media suppressed this information for fear of causing panic during wartime. Hundreds of thousands of American soldiers crossed the Atlantic, bringing the disease to Europe. The disease spread through the Allied trenches and then over to the German trenches. Soldiers on both sides rotated across Europe, spreading the infection to civilian populations. Yet, the various governments continued to hide this information from the public. Finally, the disease reached Spain, which was a neutral nation in the war. With no reason to hide this information, a Madrid newspaper published an article on the disease in late May 1918. 
Since the Spanish were the only ones reporting on the disease, they earned the dubious honor of having it named after them. The Spanish flu was especially puzzling as it seemed most lethal to young people between the ages of 20 and 40. Children and older adults recovered at higher rates than young adults who were supposedly at their physical peak. According to one hypothesis, this physical peak might be the reason so many young people succumbed to the Spanish flu. A closer look at the effects this virus had on the body may provide more understanding. Please note that this is just a theory and no one is certain why the Spanish flu was so deadly. Most influenza viruses humans encounter attack the upper respiratory system. Spanish flu was different in that it traveled deeper into the body before attaching to the lungs alveoli. The virus multiplied within these cells until they burst, releasing thousands of viruses into the bloodstream. A young child's immune system was still developing, so its reaction to this infection was not as intense. An older person's immune system also was not as intense and did not react as swiftly. But the well-developed immune system of a young adult responded rapidly and intensely. As the body went into overdrive to fight off the infection, it also produced molecules and enzymes that eroded the lung's capillaries. When these weakened capillaries burst, they filled the lung tissue with fluids. The lungs tried to heal this damaged tissue, locking the fluid into airtight pockets and preventing the proper exchange of oxygen. The victim ultimately drowned in his own fluids. Spanish Flu in the Ottoman Empire By July 1918, the Spanish flu had arrived in Istanbul. At first, the government and the media downplayed the seriousness of the disease. They likened it to normal influenza, suggesting infected people would recover with a little rest. However, that attitude changed within a few weeks. By August 1918, reports were coming in of thousands of German soldiers dying from Spanish flu. The empire acknowledged the seriousness of the disease and provided guidelines to prevent its spread. But with thousands of soldiers transferring across the empire from Iraq to Palestine to Istanbul and all points in between, it was impossible to contain. Ottoman soldiers stationed at Nusaybin in southern Turkey fell ill in early August. By mid-August, Spanish flu was in Mosul, and from there it spread throughout the empire. Inaccurate records and the confusion of a global war make it impossible to determine the exact mortality rate of the Spanish flu. In the Ottoman Empire, some reports suggest a mortality rate of 3.5% compared to a global rate of 2.5%. However, both numbers are highly speculative. Compared to the European nations, the Ottoman Empire was less affected by Spanish flu. 
The war did not disrupt daily life in the empire as severely as it did in France and Germany. The one place the disease was particularly lethal was in Medina. Some estimates suggest the mortality rate was as high as 11%. Medina, unlike other parts of the Ottoman Empire, was under siege for much of the war. As mentioned in episode 18, the Arab Revolt began in June 1916. Mecca, Ta'if, Jeddah, and most of the Arabian Red Sea coast quickly fell to the combined forces of Sharif Hussein and Great Britain. Medina was the one exception. The Ottoman garrison in Medina, led by General Fahreddin Pasha, was the one city to withstand British and rebel attacks. Unable to break Medina's defenses, the British and Arab rebels put the city under a two-year siege. Once Spanish flu entered the city, it quickly spread amongst the garrison soldiers. The siege made it difficult to transfer sick soldiers out of Medina, allowing the flu to circulate even further. Even General Fahreddin fell victim to the flu, though he did recover. Just like other parts of the world, the Ottoman Empire suffered from waves of infection. The first wave to hit Istanbul in the summer of 1918 was not that severe. But subsequent waves were more deadly. The government had to shut down schools and implemented quarantine measures. Spanish flu was also deadlier in some parts of the empire than in others. By the end of 1918, it had already run its course in Istanbul and things were starting to get back to normal. However, some parts of the Middle East continued to suffer from Spanish flu well into 1920. The Hundred Days Offensive By the summer of 1918, the German Spring Offensive was running out of steam. This last-ditch effort by Germany to stave off defeat began in March 1918 and allowed the Germans to push deep into French territory. However, by July 1918, the offensive stalled out even though the Germans were only 50 miles from Paris. They had overextended themselves and could not get past the Rhymes River. With the Germans exhausted, the Allies counterattacked. This counterattack became known as the Hundred Days Offensive and would effectively lead to the end of the war. The Allies pushed the Germans back to their initial positions, recapturing territory as they went. And by September 1918, they were close to breaking through the Hindenburg Line, Germany's last line of defense. It was obvious that Germany could not win this war. They were outnumbered by the British, the French, and their massive colonial holdings. American troops had now arrived on the front lines. And Germany was practically fighting against the entire world. Cuba, Panama, Liberia, China, and Brazil had all followed the United States in declaring war on Germany in 1917. 
As the tide turned irreversibly in the Allies' favor, more countries followed suit. Guatemala declared war on Germany in April 1918. Nicaragua and Costa Rica in May 1918. Then Haiti and Honduras in July 1918. German troop morale was low. Austria-Hungary was falling apart and barely able to contribute to the war. And the Ottoman Empire was being swallowed up by the British. The Fall of Amman Unsuccessful in his two previous attempts to capture Amman in Transjordan, General Allenby decided to complete the conquest of Palestine north of Jerusalem. To disguise his true intentions, he fooled the German commanders of the Ottoman forces into thinking he was going to the interior of Palestine around the Judean hills. Pretending to orchestrate massive troop movements, the British built large, empty barracks and erected rows of empty tents near eastern Palestine. The Germans and Ottomans responded accordingly, shifting most of their defenses east to the Judean hills, about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. The Ottoman forces in Palestine were already outnumbered by the combined British, French, and Indian troops. Falling for Allenby's ruse in the east further weakened their defenses in the west, making the outcome inevitable. To further confuse the Ottomans, Prince Faisal's Arab revolt troops cut off communications and supplies between Syria and Jordan. They attacked telephone and telegraph lines. They destroyed the rail line connecting Amman to southern Syria. And they destroyed Ottoman supply depots. On September 9, 1918, the British launched an overwhelming nighttime assault on the North Palestine coastline. After nearly four years of war, the British had finally mastered the effective use of air power. With most of the Ottoman and German planes grounded for the night, British planes swooped in and destroyed them. From there, the British planes sought out and destroyed the remaining Ottoman telephone lines. Unable to communicate and coordinate their moves, the Ottoman command structure fell into disarray. The British Navy and Air Force bombarded Ottoman defenses near the coastline. Then Allied troops stormed the beaches, clearing out the remaining Ottoman soldiers. While the majority of the British infantry pushed east towards the Judean hills, several units broke off and headed north to protect their flank. Ottoman defenses in the Judean hills were strongest since Allenby's ruse led them to expect an Allied assault in the region. Nonetheless, they were still outnumbered by the Allied forces approaching from the Palestinian coast. Just like on the coast, the British successfully used a combination of arms to dismantle the Ottoman defenses. Over the next two days, they pounded the Ottomans with heavy artillery supported by aerial bombardment. Meanwhile, British forces in the east who had taken part in Allenby's ruse linked up with units from the British Jewish Legion. Together, they captured the crossings to the River Jordan, preventing the Ottoman forces in the Judean hills from retreating to Amman. Those that tried were bombed by British warplanes. When the Ottoman troops tried to hunker down for cover, the warplanes swooped back around and raked them with machine gun fire. <laughs> 
The situation in the Judean hills was hopeless. Outgunned, outmaneuvered, and outmanned, most of the surviving Ottoman troops surrendered on September 2, 1918. Over 25,000 Ottoman soldiers were taken prisoner. The British forces in northern Palestine faced some Ottoman resistance in the Esdrilan plain, about six miles south of Nazareth. Once they were cleared out, the British moved on to capture Haifa and Acre along the coast before turning east towards Nazareth. By September 23rd, most of northern Palestine was under British control. But the British were not done yet. They crossed the River Jordan and poured into the Moab hills west of Amman, driving off the Ottoman defenders. The British finally captured Amman on September 25, 1918, taking another 20,000 prisoners along the way. The Fall of Damascus The Ottomans, completely routed in Palestine and Transjordan, were now in full retreat. But the British were right behind them, capturing thousands as they swept through southern Syria and the Golan Heights. As they closed in on Damascus, the Allied forces were joined by Prince Faisal, T.E. Lawrence, and the troops from the Arab Revolt. The Ottomans and Germans were already abandoning Damascus and fleeing north towards Homs. A few remained behind to guard the retreat, but it was clear the British weren't going to face much resistance. By September 29, 1918, Damascus was abandoned and it was just a matter of who would claim the victory. And now, the ironies of wartime politics became reality. According to the Sykes-Picot Agreement, France would take control of Syria and Damascus. However, for appearance's sake, General Allenby wanted Prince Faisal to officially conquer Damascus. Damascus was a large, cosmopolitan metropolis with many different religious and ethnic groups. But the single largest group were Sunni Arabs. General Allenby was concerned how they might perceive a European Christian army occupying this great ancient city. Essentially, the British would have to pretend Prince Faisal, who was still several days away, capture Damascus, then turn around and give it to the French. Prince Faisal finally arrived on October 3rd, and the British allowed him to enter the city as a conquering hero, while the French grimly looked on. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Prince Faisal and his father Sharif Hussein in Mecca already knew about Sykes-Picot. They had known at least since November 1917 when the Bolsheviks exposed the deal. But they had never heard it officially from anyone in the British government. When Sharif Hossein demanded details, he was led to believe any European oversight would be minimal and short-term. Prince Faisal and his father were fine with this as they expected the British to help them put their new government together. Besides, people make all sorts of promises during wartime and Prince Faisal believed things might change once the fighting was done and it was time to negotiate. 
he hoped the British would ignore their promises to the French while keeping their promises to him. He hoped the success of the Arab revolt might sway the British to support his claims against the French. And he hoped to avoid dealing with the French at all as he did not trust them. Prince Faisal was naive. After the celebrations and the speeches were done, General Allenby and T.E. Lawrence met with Prince Faisal at a Damascus hotel to break the news to him. Eugene Rogan picks up the story in The Fall of the Ottomans. What should have been a moment of celebration was overshadowed by the politics of partition, as Allenby, with Lawrence as his interpreter, took the opportunity to spell out the new administrative arrangements for Amir Faisal. In line with the Balfour Declaration, the Arab administration would have no status in Palestine. In deference to French interests established through the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Arab government would have no role in Lebanon, which France would administer. General Allenby informed Prince Faisal that Syria and Lebanon were promised to the French. According to their agreement, he explained, the French would have direct rule over Lebanon and the Syrian coast. However, the French would allow an Arab subordinate to rule inner Syria in their name. General Allenby said he expected Prince Faisal would be France's Arab subordinate. Prince Faisal argued against this new arrangement, but to no avail. General Allenby was the commanding officer in Syria and Palestine, and he had the final say. Allenby assured Faisal that he would have preferred to give him Syria, but he was following Mark Sykes's orders. Prince Faisal felt betrayed and cheated. Furious, he stormed out of Damascus, taking several units from his Arab army with him. They went to Beirut in Lebanon and occupied the city. He hoisted the flag of the Arab revolt, which, ironically, was designed by the man who betrayed him, Mark Sykes. France sent warships to Beirut and prepared to attack Faisal. French troops even landed on the shores of Lebanon, ready to storm the city. Hoping to avoid an embarrassing international incident, General Allenby intervened, sending British Indian troops into Beirut. They finally convinced Prince Faisal to lower his flag and leave the city to the French. In the next episode, we will conclude our story. We will discuss the end of the war, the peace treaties, and the final partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. 
stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Kasiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And as a Patreon subscriber, you can help choose future episodes of the Islamic History Podcast. Just visit patreon.com slash Islamic History to take part in this month's poll. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the early years of Salahuddin's role as vizier of Egypt. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. In 1164, Shirka ibn Shadi led a Syrian army into Egypt to restore the deposed Fatimid vizier to power. Friction developed between Shirka and the vizier when he refused to leave Egypt. The vizier called on the Franks for assistance, which forced Shirka to back down. After a second failed Syrian invasion, Egypt became a protectorate of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Two years later, the Franks invaded Egypt and the vizier called on Syria for help. Shirka led another army into Egypt, forced the Franks to retreat, and executed the vizier. Shirka became the new vizier of Egypt, but died suddenly after only two months. His nephew, Yusuf ibn Ayyub, was chosen to replace him in January 1169. And with that, let's take a look at how Salahuddin became master of Egypt. Yusuf ibn Ayyub was born in Tikrit, Iraq in 532 AH. This roughly corresponds to late 1138 CE. At the time he was born, Jerusalem had been in Frankish hands for 37 years. Yusuf was only an infant when his family fled from Tikrit to join Imaduddin Zengi in Aleppo. And he was 16 years old when Nuruddin conquered Damascus and his father became the city's governor. Not much is known about Yusuf's early life, but he belonged to a wealthy and influential family, so he would have had a good education and enjoyed all the comforts of life. Yusuf ibn Ayyub excelled at Arabic poetry, genealogy, and history. And like most young Muslim nobles of the time, he was well-rounded in Islamic studies. Yusuf ibn Ayyub also received extensive military training. He joined the army of Damascus at the age of 14 before shifting over to Nuruddin's army two years later. 
He was known to be an excellent horseman and well acquainted with the various equestrian breeds.